Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, my name's Mike Power. I'm Professor of Accounting, formerly Director of the Centre for Analysis of Risk and Regulation. And I'd like to welcome you all to this CAR public lecture. Um, before I introduce our very eminent speaker, I want to give you a few tips about the running order. The lecture will last about 50 minutes, and then I hope we'll have uh, 15 minutes uh, for an open um, question and answer session. Uh, we hope that the lecture will be recorded on the podcast and will be available subsequently online. And I would ask you to put your mobile phones on silent. Uh, the days are gone when I'd ask you to turn them off. You can put them on silent because uh, uh, apparently you can Twitter uh, as, as you go. And the Twitter address here is hash LSE at innovation. So... I'm very pleased to introduce our distinguished speaker, David Stark, who is an LSE Centennial Professor and is visiting LSE and visiting Carr right at the moment. David is Arthur Lehman Professor of Sociology and International Affairs at Columbia University. He was a Guggenheim Fellow in 2002 and was awarded an honorary doctorate from the École Normale Supérieure um, de Cachin in 2013. He's been a visiting fellow at many, many institutions, among these the Centre for Advanced Study in Behavioural Sciences at Palo Alto, the Netherlands Institute for Advanced Study, the European University Institute in Florence, and the Centre for Social Sciences in Berlin, and now, of course, the LSE as Centennial Chair. He's published extensively at the leading edge of sociological work on issues in valuation, innovation and digital technologies and therefore is of wide interest beyond sociology in, uh, to scholars in management, information systems, accounting and so on. Among his many achievements, he's regarded as one of the key figures, uh, founding figures in the recently emerged field of social studies of finance. And he's published work with Daniel Beyonce, who's now at LSE, on, among other things, the sociology of arbitrage. His major book, The Sense of Dissonance, Accounts of Worth in Economic Life, published by Princeton University Press in 2009, analyzes how organizations and their members search for what is valuable. More recent work has focused on how valuation in finance is shaped by networks of attention, and he's a recognized expert in historical network analysis. Throughout this work, David has a continuing interest in the theme of dissonance, i.e. the uh, disagreement within organisations about principles of worth, but how this disagreement can lead to forms of discovery. And this is at the heart of his talk this evening. The title is The Social Conditions for Innovation, Dissonance for Discovery. Please join me in welcoming David Stark to give his lecture. Thanks very much, Mike, uh, that very kind and generous introduction. It's a great pleasure to be at uh, LSE, not just for this talk today, but I, I see this as uh, an introduction to your community here. I'll be here visiting for the next several years. And uh, I have uh, very much enjoyed my first weeks here. Thanks uh, to your staff at CAR and your colleagues. I was really welcomed and um, able to get started right away upon arriving. 
Uh, today, I want to talk about uh, a series of questions that have motivated my work, my writing, my research over uh, oh, the past maybe 30 years already. Um, I want to talk about three different periods of my work, and I will do so by asking three interrelated questions. And I will address each of these questions by talking about a game. So we're going to have three questions, three games, and three answers. And what you're going to see is in the process, I will raise a question, use one set of methods to address it. It will raise other sets of questions, which will then be addressed with a different method. And then we'll try to find other questions that come out of that and, and look at it again with still a different method. So with three questions, three games, and a set of different methods. So the first question, which started my work already as a, a doctoral student at, at Harvard, uh, working with Alessandro Pizzorno and David Scotchpole, was how can we conceptualize social change? It was a question that motivated my dissertation research but I knew that it was a very burning and important question. Uh, when I found myself, after being there already for uh, almost a decade, in 1989 in Eastern Europe. So I was in the middle of one of the, certainly the most important apocal events of, of my lifetime. I'll show you some... Uh, some political campaign posters from, uh, from Hungary in, in that period, just to kind of set the, the stage where we are. It's 1989. I was in, uh, I started my work in what was at the time Yugoslavia in the last part of the 1970s. And then throughout 1980, the 1980s, I was working primarily in Hungary. These are all posters from the, the first free election in Hungary in, in 1989. Now, the question I was addressing, like what is social change? How do we think about it? This one that I'll start first not with a game, although I will go to this game, this game eventually, you'll see. But I'm going to start with a, another metaphor because in October of 1989, on the streets of Budapest, I bought a tin can. This tin can was smaller than a tuna can. And if you plinked it, you would hear that it seemed to be completely empty. But the label on the tin can, complete with a universal barcode, told you that it was not empty. It was a communismus utosho lehelete, the last breath of communism. Captured in this in this one can. So of course I, I never opened it. <laughs> now, if I wanted to, and I think as many people who were flying into Eastern Europe at that time from Cambridge, Mass, and Cambridge, England, economists primarily who were there to give their advice about what the citizens of Eastern Europe should do in uh, facing the challenges of re revamp revamping their economy and restructuring their politics. The facile metaphor was that 
This tin can was the result of some young entrepreneur working in the garage, and it really, you know, captured what was going on in this kind of toggle switch moment. We get it all in one gesture. Exhale communism. Inhale capitalism, you know. And it's just one moment from communism to capitalism, the toggle switch, from public to private ownership, from plan to market. And this idea of a transition was, was very, 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 very strong. It corresponded quite closely with the advice that was being given by the Cambridge Mass and the Cambridge uh, uh, England, Cambridge UK economists, who all were bringing to Eastern Europe, most of them with no knowledge of the region, by the way, their marching orders and their formula and their recipes, their plans for how to get from communism to capitalism in six steps or 60. And they were all looking, doing something that I at the time called the science of the not yet. We, we know what is not yet. We, we know what will happen. And we have these formula for you know, how to get there. And the quicker we get there, the better. And it's actually pretty simple. And it's a, it's, you know, it, will, it will happen. So it's, we're looking at what is not yet. Now, this idea of a transition from, to, in this kind of dichotomous terms, was one, moreover, that was at the heart of my discipline, sociology. I was brought up with it. You know, we've got all the ones, from uh, feudalism to capitalism, from agrarian to industrial society, from Gemeinschaft to Gesellschaft, from um, mechanical to organic solidarity. So the idea that you know, one could exhale communism, inhale capitalism, was you know, corresponded to all kinds of things that were, I saw all around me and seemed to make sense of what was going on from communism to capitalism. Yes, from plant to market. Yes, from public to private. But actually, there on the streets of Budapest in October of 1989, I had a problem with this transitology interpretation of my can holding the last breath of communism. Because the problem for me was that I knew that it had not been built in a garage by some young entrepreneur who was breathing the fresh winds of capitalism, fresh air of capitalism, but in fact had been made in the heart of a socialist factory by a group of workers who had been taking advantage of legislation which had been passed in Hungary already as early as 1982. And this was the, the phenomenon that I had been in Hungary studying for the last uh, seven years at that point. It was called in Hungarian, Valalati Gazdasági Munka Közösségek, Enterprise, Intra-Enterprise Work Partnerships. And in this experiment, 
which eventually employed, in which engaged 10% of the blue-collar labor force, and in some fields like uh, mechanical engineering and others, up to 30 or 40% of the, of the employees in that field, what was going on in this experiment is workers got the right in their factory to use the equipment in the factory, or if it would be in a white-collar place, the, the equipment too, the computers, whatever, to run and do the work on the off hours <coughs> under their own terms. You understand this? So from 6 to 2, working class day in, in Hungary at the time would begin at 6 to 2, they would say, from 6 to 2 we work for them, from 2 to 6 we work for ourselves. So you had what was for the organizational sociologist the absolute most beautiful natural experiment. The same people producing the same or similar kinds of goods, same kinds of products, could work in two completely different forms of social organization in a single day. So in the first part of the day, they work in the socialist order Wage norms are established centrally. They're, they're exact, very exacting plans. The, the discipline is, the, well, it's actually pretty loose at some times of the day, but there is a bureaucratic procedure to, to, to cover everything. And then in the afternoon, in an evening, and on weekends, and actually more interesting because it was impossible to police this kind of difference, you had another, another opportunity and not everybody in the shop had it, and that also made it very, very interesting, to work in a completely different form of social organization. You elected your own representatives. You contracted for orders. And all this was happening in socialist Hungary, in this extraordinary period of experimentation. So my can, the tin can, the last breath of communism, had actually been made in a state-owned enterprise but by people who are already engaging in a transformation of the fundamental property relations that they were living in, like who had access to the means of production and how, and how was work going to be accounted for. There were very, very interesting problems that were happening, and I was a witness to that over a series of different factories at the time. And then after 1989, I saw that this problem of transformation of property relations really could not be thought of in a simple transition way, like from public to private. And so I began more and more to question the very idea that social change was a transition, that it was a replacement of one form of social organization by another form of social organization. And rather, we might think about it as a process of recombination, in which different elements were taken and they were recombined in particular kinds of ways and that this was an ongoing process. Maybe it was something that was happening a lot of times in a lot of different societies in a lot of different kinds of ways. So I get to my game. It's Gazdalkos Okoshan. And I learn about this game in 1993, I'm in Budapest. Uh, a friend comes over to our apartment uh, to have dinner, and we're watching my kids play uh, Monopoly. And Peter says, oh, I got a Monopoly story to tell you. 
Now, the story was that as a young kid in Budapest in the 1950s and early 1960s, um, he wanted to play Monopoly. Except the communist authorities had banned the game Monopoly, which was called Kapital. And in its place, they had substituted this other name, which is Gazdalkos Okoshan, which means economize wisely. And with economize wisely, actually what you did is you got a job, you became a, first you became an apprentice, you went to school, you got a job, and you, um, you got furniture, you bought an apartment, then you furnished the apartment, and there was all this stuff that you could furnish the apartment. It was a board game, like Monopoly, you know, everything. Um, but it really wasn't as exciting as Capital. And he knew that because his cousins who lived in the countryside, where things weren't quite so policed, actually had an old Monopoly board. And so he would play, and his little sister would play Monopoly with the cousins, and they would come back to, uh, to Budapest, and you actually didn't need to be a nine-year-old dissident to know which was the more interesting game. Of course it's more interesting to try to bankrupt your little sister than to accumulate all this property, which is actually a strange kind of thing for the socialist board game anyway. But Hungary was a kind of bourgeois uh, idea of socialism anyway. Nonetheless, what did Peter and his sister do? You got the resources, you got the board, you got the pieces, you turn it over, and you draw out from memory capital. But of course, memory is not exactly right. You know, you can't exactly know the rules. And so you're you know, not going to have it exactly down. And moreover, you've got all these other pieces to play with. So what, over, what happened over time is that a game evolves in which it, it includes, like, you, you, you still move around, you know, you've got it, and you, you try to get monopoly, you're trying to bank up your little sister and everything, but it includes things like under what conditions of the board game will um, uh, landing on go either get you out of jail or send you to jail depending upon whether you are a hero of socialist labor. Right? Okay? Because there might be times when being a hero of socialist labor is a real liability. Okay. So you get the idea, and I'm, I'm watching the kids play, I'm hearing paper, and, I, and then I understand. I understand what's going on in the society that we're standing in, which is that they're playing, com they're playing capitalism with communist pieces. That is what was happening in Eastern Europe at the time. It was not a simple replacement, it was a kind of recombination. And so how I began to see the society was that it was not that capitalism was being constructed on the ruins of communism, but that capitalism was being constructed with the ruins of capitalism, uh, of communism. I'm sorry. Capitalism is being constructed with the ruins of communism. And all that was in response also to this problem of the science of the not yet. Because the real problem of the economists was not just that they were looking into the future of this crystal ball, but that they were holding it up and looking at the present, looking at the society through that distorted lens. So what I decided to do was to set that lens aside and try as much as possible to understand what was actually going on in the society that I was studying. 
And so I concluded as the answer to my first question that social change is not replacement of one system by another. Instead, it is a combination or a new combination of existing elements. So my second question, what is the organizational basis for recombinant innovation? This question came to me very much as I was uh, watching my daughter in her soccer practice in Palo Alto, California. I was on leave at the Center for Advanced Study in Behavioral Sciences. And I was writing the book that was based on the research that I had done in Hungary. And uh, a parent, a parent of uh, his daughter was also on this soccer team, said, uh, what are you doing here in Palo Alto? And I said, oh, I'm writing a book about Hungary. He said, oh, well, tell me about it. It's interesting. And I said, well, you know, it's extremely interesting because I see these firms, they come together, and they, they're not really concerned about the boundaries of where one firm starts and another firm stops. Uh, he said, oh, that's, that's really interesting. Like, tell me more. I said, well, you know, and, and they don't really get all too concerned about the lawyers come in and working out all the property arrangements. First, they, they try to get their engineers working together and talking with each other across these boundaries. He said, Oh, that's really fascinating. Tell me more. And I would start telling him more and I'd tell me more. Each time he said, well, yeah, that's so interesting. Tell me more. And finally, after a series of that, he said, you're not talking about Hungary. You're talking about Silicon Valley. We're in Palo Alto, remember. He said, you're talking about Silicon Valley. And so the cartoon version of this, remember, I've just been flying back and forth across the Atlantic Ocean to go study this epochal revolution that's taking place in Eastern Europe. The cartoon version is that there's this guy standing on this soccer field, and he's got a light bulb over his head, and it goes, why are you not studying the transformation that's happening in your own society? You know, you don't have to go all the way across the Atlantic Ocean to see interesting kinds of transformations. The society that you're living in is one that's undergoing profound transformations, and you should study it. Okay. So I said, all right, well, I will not then just do field work in Hungary, but move to New York City uh, and started doing research, ethnographic research, about the problem of what was the organizational basis for recombinant innovation. And this second question has also got a game, and it's a monopoly game. And it is the monopoly game that my kids were playing there in Budapest. So it's the way I will start to tell this story of, of innovation. Because what were my kids doing? They had taken their monopoly board to a friend's house. They brought the board back, but they had forgotten the little pieces. You know, the little greenhouse and the little red hotel or which, whichever one it is. They'd forgotten the pieces. And it was, oh, we forgot the pieces. How are we going to play it? And then pretty quickly, they realized, no problem. Legos, get to work. 
But as soon as you've got Legos, then why would you be satisfied just using like yellow Lego for the house and the red one for the, for the hotel when you could build these fantastic structures that would rise above the monopoly plane? And so a game over time evolved, which was some combination of Monopoly and some combination of Legos, which had its own rules. But the point was not just to bankrupt your little sister, but you actually wanted her to come around. You still need to get contiguous properties because that's the only way that you could get your structures, like have, have footprints that would be big enough that you would get them coming up above the Monopoly plane so she could bring her little car or whatever it is and sit on the top. And so we got this kind of outcome. And why do I tell you this story? Because it's, I think, a wonderful metaphor for what innovation is. Innovation is recombination. It's having resources which can be combined in different ways in which the outcome is not one thing or another thing. It wasn't that they were playing Monopoly or that they were building Legos. A new kind of thing had evolved out of the combination of these kinds of elements. And so I realized that economists don't have a monopoly on game theory. That we, sociologists and other social scientists, also can contribute to thinking about game theory. And so I use it to think about what is innovation? What is entrepreneurship? And for me, Entrepreneurship, innovation, is keeping multiple games in play at the same time. And in a way, exploiting the slippage or the friction, whichever way you want to think about them, among them. Tolerating the ambiguity and actually creating the possibility that you could have moves which would be simultaneously moves in one game and another. Not just one game or another, but one game and another at the same time. And over time, sometimes quicker, sometimes slower, new practices and new products, new processes, moving away from the business world, new campaigns for uh, um, NGOs, new kinds of of work in in government regulatory fields, in this combination of keeping multiple games going at the same time. And I realized that there was some fundamental good social science theory that could found a basis or a starting point for some of that way of thinking. Because, for example, Pierre Bourdieu had already the idea that a social field always has more than one principle for assessing value, multiple forms of capital way he thought about them. Or that Borgia's protege and then uh, a diffident adversary, then reunited uh, father-son figures, um, Luke Boltonsky also argued that there are multiple <coughs> economies of worth. That in many situations, there's not just one way of accounting for what's valuable that there are multiple accounts, multiple ways of understanding what's valuable. And that was the basis then for the work. Or Actually, it's, it's not the basis for, it's the result of the research that I did for my book, The Sense of Dissonance, Accounts of Work 
accounts of worth in economic life. So what I did was to first ask the question, what is search? And search is arguably the watchword of our era. So if the engine of the industrial economy, or the engines of the industrial economy were the internal combustion engine, or the jet engine, or the steam engine, then certainly the engines of our era are search engines. But I'm not actually interested in the kinds of searches that can be solved by a search engine. Because the search that I'm interested in is the search that's the challenge of many, many kinds of organizations. And I formulate it this way. It's the search when you don't know what you're looking for, but will recognize it when you find it. And for me, it's like the 25-word definition of innovation. In science, we have a term for this kind of search. We call it research. If you already know what you're looking for, you already know what you're going to find, it's not a, it's, it's not a good dissertation topic, as, as uh, uh, Mike and I were, were talking earlier. If you're looking for a dissertation, you know this problem of search. You know it very well. You've, you've got to find something. You've got to keep open this ambiguity. You have to not really know what you're looking for, but you also have to be able to recognize it when you find it. If you already knew what you're looking for, it's not the same as you've, you've got some problem. You're, you're open. It's an open process of exploration. It corresponds with what John Dewey called inquiry. It's an open-ended process. It's not like solving a puzzle where we already know what the solution is. It's a, a process of genuine inquiry. And as we also tell our students, it's not both of these elements, the open-endedness of it, its tolerance of ambiguity is one side, but we also have to be able to recognize it when we find it. And that's also the challenge of an innovation. The more radical the innovation, the more difficult it is to present it to other people so that they recognize what it can be. What, what it can be used for. So you have to recognize it and recognize it in a form that others are able to understand and, and accept. And that's a very interesting challenge. And I studied that by looking at, um, first of all, the machine tool shop that, in which I had been studying those Balalati, Gozdashaki, Munka, Kuzushege guys in, in Hungary. They're my first case. The second was a new media startup in Manhattan Silicon Alley, a firm I called Net Know-How, where I found multiple principles of value going on in the firm. The programmers did not share the same criteria for what was valuable as the interactive designers. And they didn't share the same principles of value with the information architects. And the information architects absolutely did not agree with the um, retailing specialists who were in the firm. The, the, and, and they were at odds with the people and the business strategists in the group. But the wonderful thing about net know-how 
was that not only the principals involved, but pretty much everybody in the firm understood that if they did, if they too quickly all agreed about what was valuable in this very fast changing field of website development in that period at the turn of this century, that they could lock into successes and find markets uh, evaporating right under their feet. So they had to, had to be able to anticipate changes that were happening and not simply respond to them. And the best way to do so was to keep open multiple principles about what was valuable. They had to do that at the same time that they met deadlines. And so there was a clear job of project management, like you had to be able to come to settlements in which you agreed to disagree, but you're going to get the job done. But these issues would be immediately opened back up again. I did the same thing with Daniel Bayunzo, uh, although we didn't understand it was going to be the same thing at, this, at the time that we did this research, in the derivatives trading room of a major international, international investment bank on Wall Street. Daniel and I started this project as I was finishing up the work in the, the Silicon Alley New Media Startup, where we were finding this hierarchy of value. What we wanted to do was to go to a place where we thought everybody agreed about what was valuable and what would be the most logical place to do that but a trading room, where you, know, you, knew, what, you knew what was valuable because you saw the trader's book. And what Daniel and I found, though, was that the, actually the problem of finding value out there in the market was the fundamental problem of these traders. And the room, <coughs> as a trading room, did not have one way of identifying that value. It was a, a, an arbitrage trading room, but there was not just one form of arbitrage. There was merger arbitrage. There was uh, index arbitrage. There was stat arbitrage. There was convertible bond arbitrage and many others. And innovation in deals happened by a combination of attention within your type of arbitrage and overhearing practices and ideas that were coming from other desks. And Daniel and I were able to, to write about this. So also in its own way, a kind of um, innovation via recombination. And moreover, we saw that in an extremely acute form as the trading room that we studied on Wall Street was destroyed in the attack of September 11th, and we got to see as well how it was that recovery was a process of innovation, a response to extraordinary uncertainty, and how the employees, the traders in this, uh, in this firm and their managers dealt with that challenge. So, what I concluded in the sense of dissonance was that discovery can happen through dissonance where evaluative principles collide. Not where things sort of fit together smoothly, but where there's a, a kind of collision, where there's a friction. We might want to think about it as a tension. So I came to see that tension, perhaps even misunderstanding, can contribute 
to coordination. And here was a kind of fundamental departure from the kind of most basic uh, way of thinking of many sociologists. Because if you scratch a sociologist, you, you say, what makes possible coordination? They're likely to tell you it's what people have in common, you know, what they share. It's about shared values. It's about ability to clearly communicate. Um, it's about you know, what we have in common. It's, it's what we share. And the pop sociology version of this, which if you've worked in any kind of organization as a volunteer or an employee or anything, you, you've probably heard it, and always from very well-meaning people, is let's all get together and iron out our differences. Okay, that might work, but if your task is to come up with innovative solutions, and even more important, not just to come up with innovative solutions to problems that you already know, but to identify fundamentally new problems, then maybe it's not so good that we all get together and iron out our differences, but that we use our differences, we use the disagreements, we use the productive friction. Because disagreements, by, by here we don't mean petty kind of personalistic charges of, you know, that are, personal, that are personalized. No, they're principled. They're principled. And things can be interesting where they don't fit together so smoothly. So I'll conclude that my answer to this question, what's the sort of social organizational basis for recombinant innovation, is that entrepreneurship is keeping multiple games in play and exploiting the resulting tension. So tension in this view, of course, can become unmanageable. It can become just noise. But it can also be a tension that is, that is productive and that allows people not to converge too quickly on the lowest common denominator, but tolerating ambiguity to find, uh, to find new courses of action. So now for the third question, it's can we use large N network analytic methods to reformulate concepts that are generated by ethnography? And uh, so with this work, I'm, uh, I'm indebted to my former student and my friend and colleague, Balaj Vedresh, who's at the Center for, at the, um, well, actually, he directs the Center for Network Analysis, Network Science at the Central European University in Budapest. These are diagrams that come from work that Balaj and I have done in historical network analysis. You're going to see some more. Whoops, I'm these buttons too fast. Um, this is from work on, 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 Hung on Hungarian business groups. Um, but I promised you, oh no, I, I'm not yet at my game. Okay, uh, what are Balaj and I doing uh, in this? Uh, network analytic work. Well, we're starting with a diagram, and it's a diagram that's familiar. I mean, if you saw it was the answer to my question of uh, what is entrepreneurship, we have sort of a combination of games. These are principles, and it's interesting at the, things get interesting at the overlap. 
you have this game and that game, but if they're just indifferent to each other, what really gets interesting is when they're you know, kind of moving on the same domain space. So we take that diagram, the idea that innovation might happen at the overlap of evaluative principles, the blue and the yellow indicating sort of different principles, and we say, well, like, what if we just thought about that in network analytic terms, and each of those circles there is a node or an actor. It could be a firm, it could be a person, it could be individuals. And we took this idea of overlap and innovation at the overlap and studied organizational settings in which we are doing network analysis of them. And so what we came up with, we don't start with the idea we gather our data and we look for uh, the findings, but the findings give us this contrast between the idea of Ronald Burke, famous network analyst at the University of Chicago, his idea of the structural whole, and ours of the structural fold. And the structural whole idea is pretty simple. You have cohesive groups, and they're important because that's where, for Burke, ideas get implemented. And you have kind of long-distance contacts. You have brokerage. That's the key idea. And ideas move via these brokers from one place to another, and you need the cohesion to implement them. You need the long-distance ties, which are pretty, not only long-distance, they're arm's length, because the structural whole, that person who is the bridge, is a member of neither of the cohesive groups. This is a pure broker. This is a broker. And we say, Ron, that's great. You have a perfectly good idea about brokerage, but we don't think that innovation is brokerage. We think, actually, innovation is recombination and requires deeply proprietary knowledge. That is an entity, a person, a firm, the nodes can be different kinds of entities, who is a member of a cohesive group. But if they would be only a member of one cohesive group, where the, that cohesive group got just bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger state of cohesive group, where would be the difference? Where would be, and we'd only have similarity. So we would need at least two cohesive groups, but then that could be interesting. What if we had multiple cohesive groups in which you could have persons who would be members of more than one cohesive group at the same time? Now, Network analysts, since the time of Georg Zimmel, knew that people could be members of more than one cohesive group at the same time. It's actually Zimmel's idea of the fundamental basis of order in modern societies. But network analysts, up until just at the time that Balish and I are doing this work, had never been able to develop methods which would allow them to identify an individual as being in more than one cohesive group at the same time. You always just say, okay, they're really more in this one, so that's the cohesive group. So cohesive groups were always autonomous. They were never overlapping. But a biophysicist in Budapest developed a model called the clique percolation method, which I would be happy to tell you about, but I'm not going to do it today, which allowed you to allowed us to identify this new kind of network uh, position. It's not a new position. It's only new to network analysts. There have been such positions all along. 
uh, of the structural fold, which is an actor who is part of more than one cohesive group. And so instead of this kind of action, you see this kind of action. And I see Mike's looking at the time, but I will get this, I'll, I'll do this in 510, okay? Because I want to talk to you about the new uh, study, and it's also one that's related to games. So we're thinking about structural folds, where you can, you can already start to see where we can take these ideas about uh, evaluative principles, cultural forms, and the structural properties that can be identified in network analysis. So I said it's a game. Well, actually, this third question is not going to be answered with a game. It's going to be answered by looking at about 29,000 games. So what we do is we have data on every commercially released video game in the history of the global video game industry. It's about 30 years of data. There are more than 350,000 individuals. And what we have is for every commercially released video game, something like the credits in a film. So we know the names of, of all the people who worked on that video game, video game developers, such and such a person was the, the lead programmer, such a person was the person responsible for sound, music, uh, graphic design, um, movie elements, whatever. Okay, we have the whole list. For every commercially released video game in the history of the video game industry. And video games, by the way, Big premium on being innovative, because you don't have to be innovative to be successful, but it's a, it's a field in which there's a lot of technological innovation. There have been seven platforms have been developed across the time in which we're looking at this. And we're asking, what explains innovation in this field? So now I'm going to start talking a little bit faster, because I want to be able to tell you about our answers. We're interested in game changers. And by game changers, we mean a cultural product that stands out. It's got to be fundamentally different from what is the prevailing kind of combinations of codes in that cultural field. It's got to stand out. It has to be distinctive. It must be inventive. And it has to be recognized as outstanding. So it has to be inventive. And it has to be critically acclaimed. And when it is such, then we're going to say it's a game changer. That is something that was innovative. By the way, you don't have to be innovative to be successful. And the fact that you're innovative doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be successful. But we're interested in the innovations that are successful. And so we ask what network structures explain the game changers. And this is how we perceive, whoa. Okay, we've got the list of sort of credits for every video game in the history of the global video game industry. And this is kind of time moving here. And so what we can do is we can follow every, the career of every single participant in the industry. So we know that this person worked in that game, and then a year later, so many months later, worked in that game, and then this game, and that game, and that game, and so on. Okay? And we can have another and another. And we do that for 30 years for you know, 348,000 individuals and 29,661 production teams. Now, why do we do that? Well, we're interested in two things. And now here, what we're going to combine that attention to, let's say, 
evaluative principles it was, now it's going to be translated into more generally kind of stylistic practices, or let's call it cognitive elements, and social structural aspects. We're going to do the two things, we're going to try to do them together. And the first aspect is cognitive diversity. We're going to posit, and we know this, that video games differ in their stylistic elements. And all these games, all 29,000 of them, have been coded for the presence or absence of 105 different stylistic, from here on I'll call them cognitive elements. So for each one of those games, we know that it had, you know, which, which particular stylistic elements. And this game maybe had a different one, and that one had a different one, and that one had a different one we follow these individuals as they move through this project space, allowing us to construct a cognitive profile for every individual. So we know this individual, whoops, let me come in. This individual who's in this game was exposed to such and such elements in that game, such and such, such and such and such. So we have a profile of the, what that person has been exposed to in terms of these practices across their career up to that point when they're playing, playing <coughs> involved in working in that, on, on that team. And because we can do that, we can compute for every team and for every community within a team, that's my next point, a measure of its cognitive distance. So we could have a team that's composed of people who pretty much were all exposed to the same cultural, stylistic elements in the past. Or we can have a team that's composed of people who are you know, really pretty different. And let's say that um, um, I don't know, you were exposed to elements A, 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 and you were B, 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 and C, 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 and D, 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 really different. That group, that team, would have great cognitive distance because you would not be able to talk to each other. Like, if you're A, 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 B, C, D, A, B, C, D, A, B, C, D, A, B, C, D, you also have the same four elements, but any one of you can talk to each other kind of equally with equal ease. And we would say that group, that team, has got more cognitive distance. The, communicative, the communicational challenges that you face are really great. That also means you have real opportunities. If you can solve those communication challenges, then you can do something interesting. That's our hunch. Now, we're also interested in group structure. Now, I'm going to really start talking fast because groups, teams are composed not of just of individuals. They're composed of groups. And the groups that we're interested in here are people who had played together in the past. They'd worked together on a team in the past. And I, to be very, very quick, the more I have worked with Mike on a project, the more I understand, I get a kind of tacit knowledge of Mike's working style. I know like when I could be able to give him something like going, Mike, I'm sorry, I know the deadline is tomorrow at 9 o'clock, and I know it's 7 o'clock now, but you know, I've got to pass this on to you. And Mike's going to say, okay, you know, I can, I can handle that, I'll deal with it. Or when, when not to be able to, not, not to say that, right? Or to know that and know so well that I could say, um, you know, Maha, I know you don't write, I know you don't know Mike, but I mean, the guy comes through all the time. 
You know, he, he's really there. Just like a basketball player who's played very regularly with another would know that at a given time in the game, with so many minutes left, so many seconds left, with this kind of defense, and the score is exactly that, that in that period of the play, that I know that my teammate is going to be there and I can make that, back, that backwards bounce pass and he's going to take it and win the game. So we, we know about styles of play. We develop rules. There's other things we're going to talk about, what it means, means to play together. And through these cohesive structures, this tacit knowledge and, and other kinds of informal codes develop. So as they move through that project space, we're also looking at whether people have worked together in the past. And so these three players, workers, working on that team, had played together in the past. And we will compute those for every game. So for every game, every team, okay, will allow us to reconstruct for each team the cohesive, the distinctive cohesive groups. And we can identify the cognitive distance across those groups and identify, in particular, whether the groups are isolated or brokered or structurally folded. So teams are composed of groups. The groups in a team can vary in their distance. They can be cognitively very close. They can be cognitively very distant. And they can be brokered or isolated or structurally folded. Now, I'm not going to tell you about how our dependent variables are different because I wouldn't have time to uh, answer your, you wouldn't have time to ask me questions and I wouldn't have time to answer them. But I think you got it already that I'm interested in, we're interested in not just whether a game is distinctive or whether it's successful, but whether it was successful and distinctive. Okay? And what do we find? What we find are that game changers those successful innovations are, are, hap, happen in teams that are composed of cognitively distant groups that are structurally formed. <clears throat> so the cognitive distance is like pulling, pulling the team apart, but the structural folding, the fact that there are enough people who had worked together in the past, helped them to short circuit to, to break that kind of tendency towards short circuitry when we have trouble communicating, so we latch on too quickly to the lowest common denominator, right? Or we, we know each other so well that we're not actually ever challenged to get to think outside of the categories with which we're working. And we make those findings uh, through very rigorous statistical uh, tests that control for all the kinds of things that you might be interested in. Just last, um, so we've, we have a paper that's under review at the American Journal of Sociology. It's called Game Changers, the one that's based on this video game. And now we're moving to a, another project in which we have roughly comparable data. It's not who made video games, but who participated with whom in basically um, every jazz recording session in the 20th century. So it's like millions of people and hundreds of thousands of recording sessions. And we know that the, the problems are not exactly the same in jazz as in video games, interestingly. And we're doing some um, 
historical network analysis to look at creativity or the topology of creativity in that field. So to conclude, the dissonance of this cognitive folding, what I call the combination of cognitive dissonance and structural folding, does not eliminate misunderstanding. Let me be clear. It's not structural folding across cognitive distance allows us to you know, not misunderstand each other. It actually makes it possible for us to take some of that misunderstanding to mobilize that productive tension of rules and roles and categories and in that way create successful innovation. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, David. Thanks very much, David. That was uh, really terrific. Uh, we've got a bit of time for questions. So uh, there, we've got a roving mic. So if you want to ask a question, put your hands up and then say who you, wait for the mic and say who you are. So the gentleman in the, the middle there, please. <clears throat> and then at the back. My name is Ramesh Shukla, but I'm utterly a layman. So, um, um, yeah, uh, no professional uh, uh, interest. Sorry, I think I'm, big, I'm, I'm getting it wrong. But yes, Ramesh Shukla. Now, um, you said, I think quite rightly, the dissonance and the tolerance for ambiguity, they are the key to innovation. There is a strong correlation between these variables. Uh, but, you know, we all go through the same kind of, I mean, uh, two people going through the same kind of situation, mm -hmm. they may generate a different degree of dissonance and ambiguity. Uh, yes? So what is it which is, which is behind this different degree of dissonance? Is it thinking? So I want you to uh, say something about the role of thinking in innovation. Should I get like a couple questions at a time? Oh, thank you. Yeah, we'll can, I, can I take that one and kind of hold it? And yep. we'll get several, several, maybe collect several questions. I see. Let's, let's do that. So up in the top there. And then over, over here. Two here. Dr. Keith Postler, guest teacher in the Department of Statistics. Um, have you had thoughts um, in looking at structured um, uh, folds or networks with structured folds about um, the kind of management that is appropriate for such um, networks. Yeah. Sorry, at the back with the brown jacket in the middle. Yep. Can you say who you are? Hi. Yes, Tuka Toivonen from the University of Oxford. Yeah, I was just wondering what kind of organization should we build in order to facilitate this sort of uh, productive dissonance and whether we can really engineer this. I'm personally interested in impact hubs, for example, uh, social innovation hubs that try to really bring different networks together. So how can they be more effective with mm -hmm. really producing that? Yeah. yeah. Why don't I take those three? Um, because they, uh, I think I can, I can kind of pack them together. Um, can one engineer this? Well, I like to think about this question in, in uh, a, a way that's very um, 
practical in the context of the setting in which we're in, universities. So what would be the management style or the organizational um, um, ramifications uh, of the research that we've done? So one would be, um, well, deans, for example, seem to love these um, gadflies who are brokers and can kind of jump from one place to another. Um, they, they, make it, they make it seem like they're creating these synergies everywhere uh, because they talk a kind of language of this place and a little bit of that place and a little place of that place and a little place of that place. Um, and they like... They like to seed these things, and maybe they can design them, and they, they, they do it. Maybe your deans are like vastly superior to deans that I know in places I've been in the United States, but maybe they're not. Um, a, a different one is you would say, practically, the um, consequences that we're talking, one of the outcomes that one might be think about would be more joint appointments. Okay? Actually, people who have cohesive ties in more than one place. Not that they have no ties to any place and are just brokering uh, back and forth, but they actually have, they sit in multiple communities. They are part of overlapping communities. Now, I take that example um, from one that's that's close to me. I had a, a, a colleague at the university, at, at Columbia University, Charles Tilley, sociologist. Chuck wasn't just a sociologist. He was also in the political science department and the history department. The interesting thing for us was that it was not just that Chuck Tilly benefited from being a structural fold. It was that my department was a better sociology department because we had Chuck in it. Um, so that, that, that's the first. There. So there can be some structural things. In management style... Management style is, is one in which it's less about giving orders than in, than in helping people kind of deal with the problem of timing. I mean, I think about something more like this. Like one of the things that we know that's very important in an organization that's going to be innovative is that at the time that a project is coming pretty close to fruition that you have to be able to say, okay, now now some of you folks have got to start thinking about a new problem. And you can't do it too fast, you know, but you need to start, you need to start thinking of that problem. And you folks over here got to wind down that thing over there. And now we've got to pick it up, folks, because we're going to have to really, now we've got, you see, what they're doing is they're conducting. You know, it's, it's not about... I want you to do this. It's more like, okay, like, pick, pick it up a little bit. I'll take more volume from, from you folks over there. Comment down a little bit here. But it's really about helping people find a rhythm and a pace of work that's appropriate to the challenge of the organization. Now, one, one last thing to give you from the, the thing that we saw in, because um, you asked about management style. Daniel, Daniel Bionza and I write about this in our uh, study of the trading room after it was destroyed in uh, 911, and we saw the management style of the uh, the manager of the trading room in action, and we understood it to be very similar to the following story. It's a story from Carl Weick. It's not our story. 
what, what the story is that there was a, a military group. They were in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And this group got lost somewhere in the Alps. And it was, it was terrible. I mean, they were completely lost. And the young lieutenant manages to get the group back to safety. And he talks to his commanding officer, and uh, the commanding officer is like, how did, how did you do it? And he says, well, you know, we, we got a map. And he shows the lieutenant shows the commanding officer the map, and it's actually a map of the Pyrenees. Not a map at all of the place they were. So what does it mean? Okay, it means you have to have a, a plan, a map? No. No, that's not the story. And it's not the lesson that, that Bob, the guy who managed this trading room, had. It was the map gave people confidence that they had the ability to find their way out of this mess. He said, you know, we can do it. We can, we can solve this problem. I don't got the... And actually, the guy, the, guy the, the brilliant thing is, the guy didn't know that, you know, it, it, it was like, we can do it. We can do it. It's, and it's not, so it's not the map. It's, um, uh, it, it's, it's finding your way. I'm sorry, I can't, I can't do it better than that. We, have, we take more questions. Okay. I'm we'll sorry. I'll try to be I mean, shorter in my answers. I knew there would be yeah. loads of hands going up. Okay. You, sir, at the front. I think you'd like to. Wait for the, the mic, please. <clears throat> and we'll collect three more questions. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. okay. Simon Priest, Ministry of Defence. Um, I have a question that's probably quite difficult. How do you bring two different religions together, the Sunni Muslims oh. and the Christian religions, specifically in terms of marriage, whereby under the Sunni religion, a Sunni lady cannot, in fact, have a marriage to a Christian man? When that does happen, how on earth do they manage to keep the marriage together and bring the family on board? That's quite an impossibility as I'm in that situation. Uh-huh. Okay, we'll store that one up. Um, yep, here, and then we'll go to the back, I think. Sorry. Hi, fascinating talk. Uh, my name is Zach. I'm a graduate student in economic history uh-huh. here. Um, so my question is sort of, it seems to me that your work stands in stark, stark contrast to some of the existing work within sociology, perhaps even the economic sociology world, in the sense that I associate uh, theories of rationalization, of copying, of sort of um, rationalization, one like the Barian rationalization to be more dominant. And you seem to be suggesting that successful organizations come from exactly the opposite of that. Well, as I, you know, you think of maybe someone like like, you know, Dimaggio and Powell talk about organizations that tend to copy one another, or even market forces that would construct certain how certain video game teams are made. So I'm wondering if you could just comment a little bit about uh, that, uh-huh. contrasting social theory. Uh-huh. Okay. Mm-hmm. And back. Hi, thanks for a great talk. Um, my name is Sky. I'm an MSc in Global Media and Communications. I'm actually also studying impact hubs for my dissertation, and I'm wondering how... You're studying what? I'm sorry? Impact hubs, as the gentleman here had just mentioned. How, are you familiar with them? Uh-huh. No. Oh, yeah. There are 54 of them around the world, about 7,000 members, and they're co-working spaces that include uh, social bottom lines as well as profit okay, into the organization of the uh-huh. collaborative working space. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yep. So I'm wondering how digital communications in particular yeah. um, among global networks uh, either fosters or inhibits the innovation that you're speaking of. Yeah. Okay. Uh, maybe I take one more. Okay. There's so many. So, um, actually, you've you've been asking, I know, earlier on. So, sorry. We'll have one more round uh, afterwards. Okay. 
Um, hi, um, uh, my name is Wallace. I am from the Media and Communications Department at LSE. I wonder, um, yes, I, I study anthropology before, uh, so I'm very familiar with fieldwork and qualitative research, and I wonder if you could comment on how you see uh, the combination of uh, fieldwork and ethnographic work on the one hand, and on the other hand, uh, what you get through the stati mm -hmm. statistical analysis of these different social uh -huh. networks, how do you think these combine? <laughs> basically, uh -huh. yeah. Uh -huh. Well, I'll, I'll start with the last and go take kind of go in that order. Um, Michel Calon, the French uh, sociologist, um, challenged me, um, and he said. David, what I see is very, very interesting. You kind of go back and forth from being an ethnographer to being a network analyst to being an ethnographer to being a network analyst. And I want to see you do one study that does both ethnography and network analysis on the same problem. Uh, I thought that was an interesting uh, challenge. Um, but I'm not actually sure that I'm going to do it. Um, I'm, I'm not sure that the best way for me to develop and continue to push these ideas is to have something that would be like, and I say, oh, then you would really understand the phenomenon that you're, you're, you know, you're, you're studying. Because um, I'm not sure that we, we produce better ideas by learning more and more about a particular thing. So I think I'm I, I think I'm kind of stuck in this, but I I don't, I don't think it's been so bad because <clears throat> I'm generating questions with one I'm I'm, I'm st I start with a question I generate some answers which leads me to new questions and then I try to address those questions in another mode of analysis. They produce more questions, and I'm then generating more things. Now, the real way of thinking about it, actually, though, is it's not just me, because I'm doing this with my students. And so I have students who are simultaneously doing ethnographic work while I'm doing network analytic stuff or, or vice versa. And so there's a lot of interaction. But it's not on exactly, like, the same topics. Um, I, think it, I, I do think it's still recombination. I, and I think actually, I think that's what's interesting about recombination is recombination is not just simply like adding things up, like one plus one is you know two of these things. It's really like one plus one equals a new kind of one, a, a different thing. Um, that, that's fairly abstract, but it, it does like try to get at the, the answer to your question. Um, how does how does the web and digital um, Production change the processes that I'm looking at. I don't think it would change them. I would just need to figure out how would I be able to use. Um, I would be opportunistic. I would say, ah, it gives me more ways of studying things. Um, it would give me another research uh, venue for for looking at things. And then maybe maybe it does maybe it does raise different kinds of questions. Um, but, I mean, right now, I mean, I can give you a very simple thing. The only way we can do this stuff is that we've got crowdsourced data. You know, we didn't collect these data. These are, these are data that are collected by fanatics, i.e. fans, jazz fans and video game fans. And so the data are absolutely great. 
Because in the video game case, we've got thousands of eyeballs looking at these data, and they're going, you know, the lead programmer for that Japanese um, uh, game was not, you know, Satoshi Mitsubishi. It was, you know, somebody else, and they're they're correcting the data for us. But that doesn't really that doesn't really answer your question. Um, the imitation thing. Um, yeah, I think it's important to remember. Woody Powell and Paul DiMaggio are both extremely good friends of mine, and I not I don't say to you what I don't say in front of them. So that the work that they did on the Iron Cage was still at a time when the the dominant form of 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 business organization was the big corporation, and um, I think that there was a period in which. Many actors thought that they were operating in pretty long-term strategy horizons. And in those cases, then what you could do, one of the important ways that you could, like, because the future, although it was not unknown, was somewhat more predictable. You could think about it in kind of probabilistic terms. But people in the fields that I'm studying will tell me, you know, the old idea that the, bureauc- the the person who is at the top of some bureaucratic hierarchy knows more and can see further because they know more, you know, that's gone. Because I cannot see two, three, four years in advance in this in this field that I'm I'm in. We don't know what pro- we don't know what product. I mean, take take interesting cases of uh, of. Um, of um, cell phones and stuff like that. We don't know what product we're making five years from now. And what I know is that the knowledge base of my organization are in, like, military terms, lieutenants and captains, and I have to figure out how to empower them. Those words, actually, I'm saying, were, were, were told to me by a general, literally, in the U.S. Army. And he literally used the term lieutenants and captains. And this actually gets to management style. This guy tells me, he says, Major General Dean Cash, who resigned after the Iraq, several months after the the Iraq war, and he, he was telling me that everything about my socialization, from my entry into West Point, the military academy in the United States, through advancement to becoming a general, all these medals here and everything, how my subordinates treat me, is that, you know, I can see further, that I know more, that, that you know, I'm the boss of this thing and I can really tell people what to do because I know more. And he says, every day when I get up, I look at myself in the mirror and I go, you don't know more. The knowledge base of your organization are captains and lieutenants, and you have to figure out how to empower them. So um, that's, a, that's a different kind of managerial style. Hmm? Three more? Okay. So, um, so let's here. just take three more. Okay. I'm going to, so one here, and uh, then Julia, and then right at the back. I'm sorry, that's, that's going to have to be it, I think. Thanks for these amazing uh, uh, research. Uh, my name is Boi, and Boi Lee from Information Systems here at LSE. And um, 
My question is possibly linked to the lady's question about the juxtaposition of ethnographic research and the findings from this network quantitative data. Uh, but my anger is that um, um, from the, the first question about the transformation from communism to capitalism in Hungary, I'm fascinated by the way you say that uh, the change actually take place through communism rather than from communism to capitalism. So it's 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 a lens that matters in these kind of uh, analysis of change. But then in the question three, you kind of give me a uh, a signal. Maybe I'm wrong that the successful cases of these game changes are having some common properties. But these properties do not necessarily say structural fault or brokerage. Mm-hmm. You have an argument on that. But these properties, should I say, doesn't necessarily guarantee or automatically say they have a success because of these co- uh, properties. So my question is, can you establish a, a, a perspective, a process, uh, like the way you did in a Hungarian case that uh, these change actually happens because they are uh, embedded in these networks. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, then Julia, and then at the back. Sorry, Evan, we're, we're done. Mm-hmm. Uh, thanks, Julia Black, um, Law Department Carr and Pro Director Research. Um, just going back to the question of methodology and your different moves between ethnography and statistical analysis. And you've used statistical analysis on the video games and the jazz and and to show that, you know, you have groups, the bottom paragraph there, that, you know, diverse groups, innovation, statistically barred, I mean, statistically um, provable, etc. Uh-huh. But you've also got a claim at the top, which you can't arrive at or evidence through statistical regression. So uh-huh. how do you know yeah. mm-hmm. that cognitive folding is not eliminating misunderstanding? Uh-huh. Okay. I, um, thank you for your talk. Right. Vidya from uh, Department of Management, LSE. I was just wondering if there are two different cognitively dissonant groups, for them to actually work together and develop informal codes and desert knowledge, share that, would be that much more difficult? So, uh, so at the end of the day, is it just then... Of, uh, depending on the weak link of project management, try someone trying to actually find out things from these two different groups. Otherwise, then it just falls apart. So it, it's a probably almost linked to the first question. Uh huh. Yeah. Okay. One question. Um, all right. So I'm, I'm not going to exactly answer your question, but I'm going to talk about property. All right. Um, because. Um, There is an old way of thinking about property, and um, it's very nicely captured, actually, in the frontispiece of um, Novum Organum, which is 1620, and it's uh, Francis Bacon. And the frontispiece of Novum Organum is, um, because Francis Bacon is writing to his sovereign, I guess it's James at the time, I th- and I think it's 1620. It might be 1606, but you know I'm close anyway. And it's a, a, it's a, it's a, it's a frontispiece is a, a di- as a graphic, yeah. And it's a, a ship 
that's sailing out, but it's not sailing out into the waters of the unknown because these are geographic territory. It's like sailing out into the unknown in the field of knowledge. Because Bacon wants to tell the sovereign that you were in a period in which property was about seizing territory. But I'm telling you that it's actually in understanding the properties of nature that science will give you that we'll be able to make. That's really where the fight about property is going to happen. So he's playing with property, scientific properties. And I think what network analysis is helping us do is to say, what are the network properties um, that are that are important in 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 um, making things happen, and actually that we would be able to take those back and say, well, actually, how we think about property, even in sort of legal and ownership terms, needs to be understood in much more like network property kinds of terms. So what we're trying to do is identify new net new to identify sort of ways of talking about network properties, which have certain kinds of value and can be, um, be more assets here and liabilities there. Julia's question, you're absolutely right. I don't know. And that's the, my first claim is, is much more of a kind of assertion. And so that's actually what we're doing now. With Balage, we're studying, uh, we're studying organizations. We're going like into the organizations, and we're doing something like okay. I kind of take it back a little bit. Um, we we are doing network analysis at the same time that we're talking with people. I wish we would be like full grown, full blown ethnography. It's not. It's kind of a cheap version of it. But if it would really be like we had people in the organization who were. Who that in that beautiful way that ethnographers are the ultimate people in, in science are the ultimate people who don't know what they're looking for. If you're a really good ethnographer, you do not know what you're looking for. You just go in the organization, open your eyes, and say, like, what is happening? And then you have to be able to recognize interesting properties, interesting things that are going on. So well, what we're doing is we've got three different organizations in Hungary. We're doing network analysis of the relationship of the, of the groups and the, and the teams. And we're asking a series of questions that will allow us to understand sort of how people are engaged in processes of, let's call it translation, uh, 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 across these um, kind of disparate communities. Uh, but, but you're right, this is a, an assertion more than a finding. Um, I, I would ask you, though, to take a look at the Game Changer paper. Um, there's some wonderful stuff by uh, a Russian semiotician. Um, oh, my goodness, what's the guy's name? I'm, I'm just blanking on his name. Um, what? Yeah, I could make it up, but I, I would prefer not to. Uh, who has this, has this really beautiful stuff about the, the role of non-comprehension. Uh, and the, the, the ways in which comprehension can be um, sort of overvalued. Um, so, but I'll, I'll leave it there. And the last question... Ooh. Yeah, tell me, just give me three words again. Very quickly. 
It was just, is it, uh, does this completely depend on a weak link of project management between two cognitively dissonant groups to pick up the value that they might have, actually? Oh, yeah, okay, that could actually get back to a kind of management style again. Okay, um, what, a proje- what a good project, uh, the a chapter about the Silicon Alley uh, net know-how firm has some great passages, not great, not because I wrote them, but because they're quotations by, by, project, by the guys who are the project managers inside the or, the, this organization. And what they write about is what they talk about, we write about, they talk about is an ability in a project to hear when it's when the talk is becoming too sharp, like when an argument is becoming personalized, or when it's like gone too far. And that's when you have to cool people out. You want to keep them like in a state of of active like embattlement. Like they're they're at each other. But it has to be friendly. And when you hear that it's becoming unfriendly, it's like really and they, they talk about it as like you're hearing a tone and a tenor, and you have to be able to, to cool it out. That's on the one side. And the other is that you're just brutal about deadlines. <laughs> because you have to have ways in which people need to be able to make settlements. And if you just let them be wild about deadlines, then nothing will happen. Because you can go on and searching forever and not when you don't know what you're looking for if you don't like also be able to to kind of rein it in and say, we've got to get something done, um, then, then you'll be lost in a wilderness. Okay, I've got to rein it in and be brutal uh, as well. Um, but uh, I want to thank you, David, uh, for you know, a fantastic lecture. Uh, you've taken on us on a, a tour through... Um, quite a body of work and you're thinking about so many things with uh, you know, fantastic clarity and I know when I speak for the audience when I say that uh, it's just been really exciting to listen to you um, give the lecture and also answer the questions. I had some emergency questions in case there weren't any and things dried up and that absolutely didn't happen and I know we could go on, there were more people wanting to talk to you but for now we draw it to a close and I just want to kind of congratulate you and thank you very much. Uh, thanks, it was terrific. Thank you. Thank you.